Thank you, Sydney, so much. And thanks. And thanks to the worship team. I have to say, I have to, to uh, tell you that um, I give a big, big thank you to, to Jared McGreen for leading us this morning. Uh, Kendra is out of town, and so uh, Kevin Kingray was set to, to lead. And he, uh, I talked to him, I think, on Wednesday or so, and he said he was sick, but he was getting better, and so he should be there Sunday. And then Friday, he just bottomed out again. Fever went up, and he was just totally knocked out. So I didn't get the text message from Kevin Kingray until Saturday morning. And uh, so I texted um, Jared, or I called him, and I said, can you give me a call? <laughs> and so he gave me a call and, and um, asked, to, told him the situation. He said, yeah, I'm glad to help, whatever we can do. So just a special thank you for Jared for taking that on at the last, last minute. Just well, well done. So let's pray together. <clears throat> That is not God speaking. That is sound issue. <laughs> Father, we, uh, we pray with the psalmist as we uh, put our trust on you and you say that even when our foundations seem to be destroyed, um, you are firm in your holy temple. And uh, just I think of all the voices out there who tell us to be afraid of of each other, tell us to be afraid of what's, come, what's happening, what's going on, and, and just that um, we just need to be shaking in our boots, but our, our trust is in you. Uh, the psalmist says that your eyes watch and examine us, and, um, and you take care of us, and that you will work your justice in our lives and in our world. And so, Father, we are uh, taking the moment now to say to tell you that we trust you and we uh, believe you and we uh, are thankful for that you have made a place for us in your family and that uh, you have sent your son to reconcile us. We thank you for that gift that we praise and we, and we give glory to every single Sunday but, um, and then we maybe forget on Monday. But Father, we want to take this assurance with us in the workplace, in the home, in the families, our friends and, and, um, and acquaintances that we take that confidence with us that uh, even though the birds are saying to us, flee to the mountains, flee to the mountains, we are trusting in you and we will stay firm um, in, in your truth. And so, Father, as we look into your word, that's what um, my prayer is this morning, is that we remain firm in your word and that we continue to trust what you have told us. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. This is a, uh, a map of the uh, subway system in Paris. Now, why would I put that up there? Well, when, uh, when, when Katie was married, when she, it, we went to her wedding, obviously, in England. And uh, while they went on their honeymoon, Sue and I had sort of a second honeymoon in Paris. And uh, it was, in, it was um, uh, Sue even calls that some of the three of the happiest days of her, lives, of her life. It, it was just really an enjoyable time. Uh, it didn't start out as well as I'd planned, though. When we got there, when we took the train under the English Channel and, you know, got, arrived in Paris, we got there. I, I don't speak a word of French, and I could hear it spoken and see it written, and I'm going, why do they even have a written language? Because what they're saying is obviously not that. <laughs> <clears throat> uh, 
<clears throat> so I don't speak any French at all. And we were there. My plan was that I had a hotel destination. Uh, thank you, Rick Steves. And uh, I was going to go to uh, a, a taxi driver and say, this is where I need to go. You know, can you take us there? And then we would end up there, and that's all that's fine and good. And then the taxi driver said, sure. Uh, I think he spoke enough English where I could understand him. And he said, uh, yes, it'll be $85. And I thought, well, that's really not in the budget. <laughs> $85 for a taxi drive. Taxi ride, that's really not there. So, we're, so we, Sue and I kind of retreated and kind of regrouped and said, well, okay, well, now what do we do? And uh, kind of talked about, and finally Sue says, we've lived almost all of our married life with subways. We know how subways work. Let's just take the subway. And so we found, we knew where we were, and we knew where we wanted to go, and so we had to find out exactly where we were, and she was right. We arrived perfectly. Didn't miss a, didn't miss a transfer. I, we were in the train, because I didn't hear what they were saying. I kept watching every stop, you know, and yeah, checking them off. Here we go, here we go. We need to transfer here. And uh, we got out, and the thing is, then we didn't know which door to get exit, so we go upstairs, upstairs to the street level and go, where are we? So we had to go back down, and there was this guard there working, and we kind of tried to explain the situation. And he goes, just a minute, let me finish my paperwork. And he took us up there and showed us where we were. We showed him the address and told us how to get there. Now, I knew where I wanted to go. I knew that I needed to get to this particular hotel that Rick Steves raved about, and it was beautiful. It was great. But what I didn't know was this. <laughs> you are here. That's what I needed, but I didn't have that. And so I had to find out and ask questions of where we were so I could get to the destination. And when I had the destination, I was fine. So we can know where we're going to go, but until we know where we are, we don't know how to get there. We're totally lost. That's kind of what Paul is doing in the book of Colossians. We're getting back to the book of Colossians that we kind of gave as a parenthesis during Advent and Christmas season. Well, now we're going to return back to it. And what Paul does, and we'll look at this in a few minutes, but what Paul does in that first chapter is uh, basically give us this map of where we're going, of all this thing of, well, that, that God is wanting to do and what God wants us to do. And then in verses 21 to 23, Paul says, this is where you are. This is where you are. We know where you want to go. And this is where you are right now. And that's one of the reasons why I wanted Sydney to read those first 20 verses, but to kind of recapture and re remind us of where exactly where we came before Advent, before Christmas, so we kind of know where we're going. But basically also because this is what Paul is doing. He kind of gives us exactly where we are, what we want, where we want to go, and then he tells us where we, where we are. And so I want to do a quick review, first of all, of where we are up to this point in chapter 1. Chapter 1 is basically a prayer. But the whole book of Colossians is one of the, Paul's smaller books, and yet it is one of the most exciting. It is full of great stuff. And it's, uh, it can get kind of, uh, kind of complicated a little bit, and we start to kind of think that maybe it's just this collections of, of good thoughts and, and kind of pithy sayings and things like that or good theology, but that's not it at all. The major theme that runs through the book of Colossians is that Paul wants to the Colossians and us to grow in wisdom. Now, that is a full understanding of God's will and his purposes. And that's where he's going with it. That's the, that's the whole plan. And it's not just a, you know, just a collection of, of, of wisdom or a good collection of nice sayings or, or, or well-thought-out ideas. It is a, a common thread 
but it's easy to kind of get mixed up in all that. But Paul, especially here in Colossians, all is doctrine, all is practice, and all is worship. It's not like there's one section of doctrine and then we're going to go to ethics and then we're going to go to practice or worship. It's all mixed in together. And Paul is heading to this point and this is where he's going. And in chapter 1, when we look at the book, he is talking to the church in Colossae. And let me, let me put a, a map up here real quick uh, again. I like maps, obviously. Uh, maps... <clears throat> And there we have a book, we have the place where Colossae is located, and it's been destroyed, so we don't really know a whole lot about the town. So we, what we have to learn is what the towns around it were like, like Ephesus, Laodicea, some of these other places that we know exist, and we can kind of understand where they were at and where they were at religiously. And we can assume that they probably had the same pantheon of gods that they had in Ephesus, uh, including, the, including the worship of Caesar, um, and, uh, but there was also, obviously in the letter, there was obviously a lot of Jewish influence, which we will talk about in just a few minutes. So a quick review, the book is, is headed toward to tell us this wisdom. He wants us to grow in wisdom and understanding of God's purposes and God's will for us. And then uh, in chapter 1 is basically a prayer. And he begins with a prayer for the Colossians. And when we read the book of Colossians, it is a book written to a church, a specific church, 2,000 years ago. But if it's inspired by God, it's also something for us. God has things for us to hear. So when he's praying for the Colossians, we can also understand that maybe he's wanting us to hear the prayer as well. And so he prays, and basically the first uh, eight verses is, a, is basically a thank you prayer. He is thanking God for them. He's thanking God for their reputation and how they have, have uh, been a shining reputation of what God's people look like in that Greek, Greco-Roman, Hellenistic world. And he's, he's thanking God for that, but he's also thanking for the work that the Word of God has done in their lives. And then he's, then he's thanking them for, these, for, for what's going on there. He tells them that, that, um, that, this is, that, that there, you have a friend, you're not alone, you have a friend praying for you that uh, you are reconciled to God, that there is a purpose for you. So he's telling all of these things and being thankful to them. And then finally he ends with that great poem about who Christ is and what he's done and, and why he came. It is just this, one of the most beautiful poems in all of New Testament about the supremacy of Christ. And then in verses 21 to 23, he's telling us, this is where you are. He's telling us who Christ is, this agent of, of creation. He is an agent of the new creation, and he's telling us where we are. And he's going to tell us where we are so that we can get to that wisdom that is, that is soul healing. It is enemy reconciling. It is truth telling. It is moving towards justice and this, this sin conquering wisdom that he wants us to have. And then in verse 21 and 23, we have the end of that poem, the end of that prayer, where he says, this is where you are. So, and I just went through a couple of slides real quick here. <clears throat> the first chapter is prayers of thanksgiving, a petition, and a poem. And now we come to the conclusion of the prayer in verse 21. And first he talks about the past, and he's going to talk about the present. Then he will talk about the future and he will talk about this grand plan that God has. And he says, it literally begins, so all of this is happening, God's doing this in Jesus. So verse 21 literally says, 
So what about you? What about you guys? What about us? Where are we? And then he goes on to says, you were excluded, you are hostile in your mind, and you were involved in wicked deeds. That's where you were. You were set apart, you were excluded, estranged, you were hostile, your enemies in your mind, and you're involved in wicked deeds. This is a Greek community under Roman rule, but with a large Jewish influence. There were Jews everywhere. They had set up synagogues everywhere. And it's really interesting. According to historian Tom Holland, he says that, that um, the Greeks and the Romans had a kind of an envious, kind of a love-hate relationship with the Jews. Because they, the Jews had this, this God who loved them as his people. And that was foreign to Greek religion. That was, that was foreign to the Greek gods. A God who loved them? Our gods were petty. Our gods were, were fickled. Our gods enjoyed torturing us. And you have a God who loved you. And so they were suspicious of them, and yet at the same time they were envious. Because the Jews had been given this guardianship of the law. And they were called the people of God. But now since Christ has come, that guardianship is no longer needed. And now it's open to everyone. So he says, you were excluded, but no more. And then he goes on and says, you were hostile in your mind. He says, you're a hostile mind or enemy in, in your mind. And he's not just talking about the organ, our brain. He's talking the way our, our mindset our, our, our worldview, how we look. He said we were hostile, hostile in our minds. We were seeing people as enemies and not, and not people to love. And then he says we were involved in wicked deeds. And he's not separating those. He's saying that they're all connected. That the idolatry that we have in our minds that creates this hostility, the, the foreign gods that we are worshiping, also creates these wicked deeds. And the wicked deeds also then feed the idolatry. So you have this kind of to and fro flowing back and forth between the, the mindset and the acts and the deeds. And he says, that was your life as it was. And I think he probably mirrors this in Colossians uh, in, in chapter 3, verses 9 and 10. He says, do not lie to each other since you have taken off the old self with its practices and have put on new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge and the image of the creator. So this is what he's looking forward to, chapter 3, but he says, right now, when you're past, you're, you're excluded. You are, have enemies in your mind, and you're involved in wicked behavior. And it all comes back to what you believe in, in your idolatry. And a lot of people think that, that, um, that what we think does not matter. But ideas do matter. We do crazy things because of ideas. We determine how we live because of ideas of how we think certain things ought to be and how certain things are. People, I've mentioned this before, people fly airplanes into buildings because of ideas. They're very important. But then the behavior also feeds the ideas and you just have this continuous cycle of what's going on and it just feeds off until we get into this downward spiral. And I, I never, we didn't watch the... Um, watch the, the series, but my understanding of Breaking Bad 
was about this man who made these, who had these ideas and made these constant bad decisions, and he just went into a downward spiral. We didn't watch it because Sue says, I hate watching people spiral downward. <laughs> and that's exactly what happens. That's exactly what he's warming against. But then he says, the present. But now, but now, he says, you've been reconciled. You've been reconciled by his physical body, fleshly body, through death to present you holy, without blemish, and without accusations. So we have this, this uh, again, again, this mirror effect here of exclusion, enemies in the mind, wicked behavior, and now we've been reconciled. We've been reconciled to God, the holy, without blemish, and without accusations. This is where we are now. God has done what the law could not do. God has done what human wisdom cannot do. He sent his only son with an attractive aim, and that is to reconcile us to himself. Most of us know how the Jewish temple was set up. You had this sort of concentric circle. You had this outer ring where Gentiles could come and worship in the temple. And then you had this inner ring where you had Jewish women. And then you had this other inner ring where the Jewish men, until finally you had the Holy of Holies, which was only for the, the high priest. And what Paul is getting at here, he doesn't explain it, he just says it. He just kind of hints at it. He's using ritual language here. And he says in the Old Testament, in the old ways, you had to have without blemish, not necessarily a moral term, but just come without blemish before you could approach God. In any of those concentric circles, you had to be without blemish. And it was done by sacrifice. And now he's saying through Jesus' fleshly body, this has happened through his death. He doesn't really explain how it happens. In fact, the New Testament doesn't really explain it. They just give us a lot of metaphors for it. And we have a lot of pictures of how this happened, of what it were, how it works. But he's basically saying that this fleshly body through death makes us set apart for a purpose. It makes us without blemish. And it makes us accessible to the Holy of Holies without accusations. This is the heart of Paul's theology right here. And like I said, he doesn't really explain it, but he just paints the picture. Let me get technical for a few minutes here. The way the most modern translations read this, it's hard to grasp the kind of what Paul is talking about here because he uses flesh and body together, but they're really two different words. The first word, flesh, oftentimes deals with the, the human tendency to sin the human tendency to rebel against God. And the body is more like the whole person, not just the fleshly part, but the whole person. And what he's saying here is that Jesus is identifying with the fleshly, sinful human being, but he himself was without sin. Meaning he identified with the fleshly, sinful human being by submitting himself to the ultimate sin of murder. He was a victim he subjected himself to fleshly human sin. Christ had to die, not because God killed him, God the Father killed him, or God made a sacrifice to himself. He died because 
This is what humans do. This is what humans do to pure goodness. We kill each other. I just read in the newspaper this week of two Iranian young men who were executed for protesting for, for, for human rights. One was an Olympic athlete, national champion in karate, and the other was a children's soccer coach. This is what humans do to each other. And this is what Jesus did. He submitted himself to fleshly, sinful human beings. And through that death, that sin was condemned. Mine and yours and everyone else's is condemned, and we are in the family reconciled to God. And Paul goes on to say that he is the first of a really large family. He goes on in verse 18 that Sidney read earlier. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he might, he, so that he might come to have first place in everything. That's where we are. That's the emphasis. The emphasis is on the person, not necessarily the transaction here. Only because through death could this happen. This is the truth. Not table manners, not laws, not human wisdom, but that we have presented, been presented before God in the presence of God, holy, without blemish, and without accusations. That means even the the superficial gossip that people may say about you is not there. You are there without any accusation whatsoever. And this process is just this patient Christian living. We go on to verse 23 and he says, the future. This is where it gets a little sticky. He says, if indeed you remain in the faith, Established and firm without shifting from the hope of the gospel you heard. This gospel has also been preached in all creation under heaven, and I, Paul, have become a servant. This assumes, this is a conditional statement. There's no other way to read this except a condition. But the thing is, what modern evangelicals do, and I'm talking about 20, 20 21st century evangelicals, they read everything, almost every verse, about who's going to heaven and who's not, okay? It's all about the eternal destiny. This is not what this is about. This is this thread that runs through Colossians. What Paul is saying, he says, yeah, when you've been reconciled to Christ, it doesn't mean you're perfect. Nobody's saying that, Paul's not saying that, nobody is saying that. It doesn't mean you're perfect. But what it does say, what he does say, what it does mean, he says, don't go back to the idolatry. Don't go back there. Because if you go back there, it's a shaky foundation. He says, instead, build your life on a firm foundation. And that's what all this is all about. He says, when you've been reconciled to God, this is a firm foundation. Don't shift away from the hope. Why would you go back? Why would you go back to try to please a tyrant like Caesar? Why would you go back to, a, to try to please a, a goddess like Artemis? Why would you do that? And he's saying, build your house on this foundation and it will stand. It will stand the storms. You won't shift from your hope. This is what he's getting at. 
you will be in God's presence if you stay on the foundation. Don't go back to where you were. Don't go back to what was there. This is a different train of thought that Paul is talking about. He's talking about living with wisdom. And this is where you get completion. You build the house. You build the, the structure that will stand. And Paul says this in Philippians, that famous verse in Philippians 1.6. Uh, yeah, 1.6. He says, he will finish the work that he started in you. Stay on the foundation and he will finish the work that he started. That's all he's saying. Don't go anywhere else. You don't need to look anywhere else. Know where you are. And the last half of the verse, we have this cosmic shock wave. And he says, he says this, this gospel that has been preached in all the creation under heaven and on earth. Now, Here's another question, another problem. This, this three verses is just full of questions, right? He said, the other question is, okay, wait a minute. Uh, Paul, at this point, hasn't really traveled very far. I mean, he's been back and forth to Jerusalem. He's been to Ephesus. In fact, he's in prison in Ephesus right now. He's not even been to Rome yet. He hasn't been to Spain. hasn't been to North Africa. How can we say the gospel has been preached to every creature under heaven? Well, one way is to say, uh, well, the, gospel, the, 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 the nature preaches the gospel. Well, Paul does sort of say that, that we can know God or we can see God through creation. He does say that in Romans. But I don't think that's what he's saying here. Maybe he's saying that every, the gospel has been preached to every creature in nature. Well, maybe. But it hasn't been proclaimed verbally to humans yet. I kind of doubt that's what he's saying either. What I think he's saying is that in principle, when the resurrection happened, this changed everything. And the gospel was proclaimed everywhere, and Christ reclaimed ownership of every corner on the earth. Every corner, Christ is Lord. He has reclaimed ownership. And so when we take the gospel other places, it's perfectly legitimate to take the gospel <clears throat> that Jesus is Lord to every place on the planet. Because that's belongs to him and we can take that to him we can take that to people because that's what he has already he owns it and yes there will be bitter resistance and there could be painful paul has been in prison you know he's suffered for it but it belongs to jesus and the, the best example i could think of is that <clears throat> that it's like a king, a sovereign king, who declares a proclamation and then sends out his heralds to, to tell everybody. So we've got a king that proclaimed this, that Jesus is Lord of all. We just saw that. Sidney just read that, that poem. He is Lord of all. And now he is sending out the heralds to proclaim it, including Paul. And Paul says, of which I am a servant of the gospel. And that's what we do, too. He's made the claim. We tell about it. The creation, I believe, knows in its bones that the gospel is right, that Jesus is going to redeem it. And yes, it is proclaimed to human beings, but the benefits is not limited to human beings. I believe that's clear in the New Testament that we're talking about a redeeming of the entire creation.
those three verses jam-packed, full of a lot of theology and a lot of stuff. But the bottom line is that I, that I think what Paul is getting at is that this is where you were, and now this is where you are right now. You are in front, presented, without blemish, without accusations, set apart in the presence of God. And so I almost see faith as a place, even more than an activity, this activity of believing. I believe it is a place where we remain. It is a place where we stand solid. It is a way of life. It is firm. It is secure at every stage of our life. Genuine faith at the beginning may be hard to distinguish from someone. And if it withers and dies, you know, probably not genuine. But genuine faith is just a steady, patient, steadfast, day by day, building our life on a firm foundation. On the trust that we have been reconciled to God and we stand before him without blemish. It is a new way of being human. This is where we are. What Paul is working for and looking for is not just maturity as a Christian, but he's looking for mature human beings. And he's offering that this is a new way to be human. Stop appeasing the idols, whatever those idols are. I don't think we have a lot of idolatry going on like, you know, like Artemis or Aphrodite or some of these other, other goddesses and gods. I don't think there's much of that. But we do have our idols. Um, I heard one preacher say we have the idol of consumerism, and I find that's probably an idol, but it's awful boring idol. At least those had statues and pretty things and going, oh, that consumerism's kind of boring. But we do have idols. And he says, don't go back there. He has sent his son in the likeness of human flesh. He has dealt with sin, and he brings us to maturity as human beings. This is a new way of being human. The old way, the old way is hostile minds. The old way is on the fringes. The old way is involved in wicked deeds. This is a new way of being a human being. Many of you know that uh, I had the pleasure and the privilege of um, officiating at uh, Allison Armadine's wedding about a week or so ago. And one of the most joyous weddings I've ever been a part of. <clears throat> and it was, it was tons of fun. And it was great to be with people that I, uh, that I knew and, you know, and, and it was really beautiful. It was a lot of joy in that room. Uh, Allison looked beautiful. Marvin looked dapper and spiffy in his suit and all this. And we all had dressed, we all had dressed up for it, you know, and it was all nice and stuff. I, I, it reminded me, I heard uh, Nadia Bols Weber one time ask a question on a podcast. He, she says, why do we get all dressed up uh, at a wedding? She says, you know, it's probably more realistic if we just rolled out of bed and just arrived, you know, as we are. Because that's what we're getting into, you know. And yeah, think about it, you know, yeah, that's kind of true, actually. You know, it is a little bit more realistic to show up, just roll out of bed and, you know, hair sticking up. That is, if you have hair. And, uh, um, you know, sleep in your eyes. And I'd be there with my Dallas Cowboys shirt that I've had for years and years and years that I sleep in. And it's, that's, that's how we are. And that is realistic. And I'm not advocating that. <clears throat> I think beauty and ceremonies are very important to us. 
but they don't completely define us, who we are. More like when we get out of bed, that also defines kind of who we are. Dressed up perfect is part, but not everything. I mean, my Dallas Cowboy t-shirt defines me a lot better than a tuxedo, believe me. That's more realistic. But we are defined by the ordinary, we're defined by the failure, we're defined by our needs, we're defined by all of those things. God doesn't just cherry pick, you know, our Facebook moments or our Instagram moments and say, yeah, these are what I, this is what I want from you guys. No, he, I would like to think that I could just hand him my highlight reel, you know, and leave all the other stuff cut on the, on the editing floor, leave all that there, sweep it under the rug or something, but I don't. I can't. He, he, he seems to take it all. And he says, nothing will be lost. Nothing will be lost. The good is good, but the bad is also useful. And this is what we give him. This is what we give him. God is interested in, in, in loving us, not just the cleaned up version, but the whole thing, the small, the self-interested uh, stuff, the angry st selves, the weepy stuff, stuff the, the petty stuff. Because God doesn't share our mindset. We are either or people. But Jesus is a both and person. He, he wants us all, even if we're hostile in mind, involved in wicked deeds, excluded. He wants us all. He basically offers love, mercy, and forgiveness to anyone, anyone who wants it. We get kind of stingy. Jesus is not stingy. He takes us where we are. He is not an either-or person. He takes it all. He reconciles everything. So nothing, nothing gets in the way. We are presented before the presence of God, holy, without blemish, and without accusation. Paul says in Romans, nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. And I want to add, not even your own thoughts. Your own thoughts can't even separate you from God. He takes it all. And Paul is saying here, stay on the firm foundation. Build your house on that. Structure your building on that and it will stand. The same God that was there at your first breath, he's also there on the cutting floor where you would like to, to leave all those times when you yell at your kids or when you said somebody something that hurt or when you lied about something or when you listened to a voice that wasn't God. He is there and, he's, and you want to cut it up on the, and leave it on the floor, but God says, no, wait, wait, wait. I can use that stuff. Let me have everything. Let me have it all everything, and I will present to you holy, without blemish, without accusation. And he will be there at our final breath as well. And it will all be raised on the last day. There is no reason to look anywhere else. You are here. You are here. And we can Get there. It's just this steady day by day building our lives on the foundation.
this is where we are. This is where we are this morning. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the gift of the Son who did something we don't really understand, but boy, do we appreciate the privilege. We thank you for redeeming us, for reconciling us to you. Regardless of what people say, regardless of what we tell ourselves. In the name of Jesus, amen.